Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. Thanks for tuning in and joining our River Talks community. This season, we're bringing you something a little different. Instead of recording live River Talks, we've switched it up and hosted interviews with a variety of guests. The talks were recorded on Zoom, so just a heads up if the audio sounds a bit different. Now to this week's River Talk. Welcome to River Talks, our online and interview version for this spring of 2020. I'm Catherine Price, the River Talks program manager. You're probably used to hearing me or seeing me at the River Center, but this year we're bringing you our River Talks series in a little bit of a different version online. So today I am joined by Erin Dieter-Wolf, who is a prehistoric archaeologist with the State of Tennessee Division of Archaeology. And Erin has previously spoken as part of two River Talks, And I'm always excited when we have him come to give talks because he really provides that historical context to our region and the role of our waterways through time. So I always enjoy hearing that perspective. So thank you, Aaron, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate appreciate you guys reaching out and continuing the program in this time of uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of uh, introduce yourself a little bit more, could you describe some of the areas of your archaeological interests and the research that you've done? Absolutely. So I, as you said, I'm a prehistoric archaeologist. I work for the Tennessee Division of Archaeology. We're part of the state's uh, Department of Environment and Conservation. And most of my work from, well, on a day-to-day basis focuses on ancient Native American sites in Tennessee. Um, That includes sites on state-owned lands. It includes accidental disturbances to prehistoric graves during um, urban expansion and growth. It includes uh, research using existing collections and artifacts that have been excavated um, decades ago or even more recently. And uh, much, much more seldom it involves actually doing archaeological field work. We'd love to do more field work. There just there aren't quite enough of us at the Division of Archaeology to launch large scale field projects anymore. Mm-hmm. And so most of the things we're doing these days are more related to uh, you know, regulatory and preservation concerns and things like this. Sure, absolutely. So in Middle Tennessee, what are some of our kind of well-known archaeological sites, maybe that some of some of us might be familiar with, but didn't realize that they were these important sites? Yeah, so there are over 600 recorded archaeological sites in Davidson County. And, you know, significantly more than that when you then move into Rutherford and Williamson and Cheatham counties. Um, archaeology is all around us, right? There have been people living along the Cumberland River in what is now Nashville since, let's say, 14,000 years ago, give or take a couple thousand years. Mm -hmm. And over the course of that period, people have left a lot of stuff behind, right? They've left behind everything from campsites and uh, hunting locations, places where people sat down and had one meal five or 6,000 years ago and then moved on. They've left behind cemeteries and villages and towns and all of these things are around us and are part of the archaeological record. And a surprising amount of that material has not yet been encountered or destroyed. Um, Hmm. One of the really interesting things we're finding as Nashville continues to grow is that even in the urban core of Nashville, uh, there are deeply buried archaeological sites. So places that people lived on the landscape thousands of years ago which then over time were infilled or built up rather than being bulldozed away. Mm -hmm. And so new construction is now encountering those sorts of remains. 
Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting process to, to learn about those and to sort of look around modern Nashville and see it through these different eyes. Yeah. Um, you know, as an example, right, there was a, a large late prehistoric Mississippian village at what is now Centennial Park um, surrounding the spring that was located there at Centennial. Uh, there was a, a chain of five mounds, a large Mississippian town on the east bank of the Cumberland River opposite Nashville and sort of the Cowan and Jefferson Street areas. And historical accounts from the Civil War talk about how the footprint of that town extends all the way up into Cleveland Park. Oh, wow. And then to the south, there are these string of individual family farmsteads, kind of the suburbs that swing all the way down through Shelby Bottoms and back up to Moss Rose Drive, where there was another large Mississippian town. And that's not even dealing with the salt processing facilities that were on the west bank of the Cumberland River in the area that's now the, uh, the Sound Stadium. So you know, Nashville it was this very densely occupied area in the past. Um, you know, there's sort of this idea that when the first European and Euro-American settlers arrived in the middle Cumberland, they encountered this pristine wilderness. And that's, that's simply not the case, right? They encountered a landscape that had already been uh, lived in and changed and altered by Native American occupants for thousands and thousands of years prior to their arrival. It's so interesting, too, the way you just describe where those different places are in Nashville, Centennial Park, the Jefferson Street area. Like you said, they all sort of center around the Cumberland River, and it's the same way that we develop our modern cities next to waterways. Having that access to water is so valuable. Um, and one of the questions we got from Libby was whether and what, what types of artifacts have been discovered downtown? You kind of mentioned that with all this development, we're seeing more of that. What are some of the artifacts that we've seen, particularly in that really uh, urban core of downtown? Well, it, it varies depending on the site, right? So, you know, historically in what is now the downtown Nashville core, um, you have people pulling out mastodon remains from along the, sul the sulfur spring that was formerly a, uh, there along Lick Branch by Centennial Mall area. You have that chain of earthen mounds on the, on the east bank of the Cumberland. There was another earthen mound um, in the Bicentennial Mall area then around that same time. There's, there's one account from after the Civil War where Joseph Jones, who was Nashville's health officer, and was also an, an antiquarian archaeologist. So he was not trained as an archaeologist, but he was one of these sort of classical scholars. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he writes an account that describes how every time it rains, the banks of the Cumberland are caving off and exposing artifacts and pots and stone tools and graves wow. and all kinds of things into the river. So, you know, th that just sort of gives you this idea of, of how Nashville was a city before the city that we think of today. Yeah. And, you know, and the water is critical, right? So uh, a colleague and I recently did uh, a project where we, we did a modeling of the location of all recorded Mississippians, so late prehistoric sites. These date from about 1000 AD up through about 1400 AD. And we modeled them all on the landscape and found that every single one of them, all 300 and something Mississippian sites in the Middle Cumberland region, are located within 700 feet of either a blue line, a blue line stream or a uh, permanent spring. So that gives you an idea of you know, how critical these water sources were to these people. Like you said, they're, they're, they're choosing where to live based on the availability of fresh water. Yeah, wow, that 700 feet, that's even closer than I think I would have thought, that's amazing. You did some really interesting work um, after the 2010 flood. Can you describe you know, what you did to, um, 
you know, find new archaeological sites after the flood and also kind of see what sites might have been lost? Absolutely. So, you know, that, that weekend flood, May 2010, did all kinds of damage to our existing Nashville, right, our existing infrastructure. But it also had this severe impact to the riverbanks, um, both consolidated and unconsolidated riverbanks in the broader Cumberland watersheds, so not just the Cumberland itself, but, you know, stretching out along the major tributaries as well. And in the wake of that flood, uh, my colleague Tanya Perez, who was then at MTSU and is now at Florida State, uh, she and I started doing visual inspections of some of the large prehistoric riverbank sites near downtown Nashville. And we discovered that huge portions of those sites had been obliterated over the weekend, over that first weekend in May. And, you know, literally acres of land taken away from unconsolidated riverbanks just washed downstream along with acres of archaeological sites. And when those bank lines caved in and washed away, two things happened. In some cases, sites were destroyed entirely. So sites that we knew were there, there was no further evidence of them, no artifacts, no sign of them whatsoever. They're gone. Wow. The second thing that happened was new portions of existing sites were exposed. So sites that had never seen the light of day, so to speak, were then exposed along the riverbank. And what we found was in the weeks and months following the flood, there was a huge uptick in looting, uh, illegal excavation of sites on private property in search of high value artifacts. And at some of these sites along the Cumberland, people were going in and, at night and digging in, you know, 15 foot wide by six foot high holes into the riverbank in search of artifacts. And of course, what that does then is it furthers the destruction of private property and of archaeological sites. You know, that hole then leads to further erosion and caving of the bank line, further natural processes that will take away more of that site, that will take away more private property. And so we, uh, we got a grant from the National Science Foundation. It's a series of grants they give for uh, studies uh, to be done around and focusing on disasters, natural disasters. Um, it's the rapid relief grants. And so we did a study where we went and looked at 128 different site locations along the Cumberland between Cheatham and Old Hickory Dams to assess the status of those sites and uh, to salvage data from ones that were, that seemed to be in imminent danger of disappearing. And, you know, this, this was all, of course, caused by this horrible event, but the bright side scientifically and from a preservation standpoint is that we were able to gather data for the first time, the first time that any of the scientific data had been gathered from dozens of these sites. And in some cases, the last time that it will be gathered because those sites are now gone entirely. And so using that information, we were able to um, come up with this whole new, whole new set of information about life along Cumberland River, a detailed radiocarbon chronology, as to when certain sites were occupied. We found a tremendous amount of information about um, what's sometimes called the Shell Mound Archaic. This is this period from about, um, let's say, 7,000 BC up until about uh, 2,500 BC, where people are living along the Cumberland and other major tributaries and subsisting mainly on freshwater snails that they're getting from the channel of the river. And those are environments that we don't have anymore, right? That's one of the things we recognized is that these acres of thick snail shell deposits, they're being procured. People living along the Cumberland were procuring these snails from these shallow riffles, from gravel bars that form at the confluences. Right. Well, those are the same gravel bars that 
inhibited historic navigation in the Cumberland. Mm -hmm. And so those were then eventually dredged away. And so today there's no, there's no surviving environmental record of that, that portion of the Cumberland's history except for these snails that we find in the archaeological record. And there are millions of these things at any given site. And so by looking at these millions and millions of freshwater snail shells, we're, we're coming up with some, some, some new and interesting ideas about how people were living along the Cumberland. Yeah, I remember you gave a river talk about those sites. And um, one of the interesting things I remember you talking about is that sometimes the shell sites looked like they were kind of like the garbage dump. And sometimes they were maybe a place where people had like religious ceremonies. And I think it's so interesting trying to understand from the archaeological record what something was used for um, when it is just, you know, shells. That's what you're able to see. You know, that's one of those things about our archaeological interpretation, right, is that people who lived in the past had very little regard for what we think their sites should have been or yeah. what they should have been doing. Yeah. And, and so, you know, looking at these, looking at data with, with an open mind and being willing to, you know, retest and disprove ourselves is, is an important part of the process. And I know we had another question come in from Nicole, and she works a lot with different farmers along um, in, in the Middle Cumberland area. And so a lot of times, like you were saying, they tend to find artifacts on their property since they're next to waterways. Is there any type of pattern in terms of the types of artifacts you tend to find closer to waterways? Or does it really depend, like you said, on the time period and, and what they were maybe using that area for? So the specifics do depend on the time period, right? Uh, uh, artifacts change shape and change material types over time. You know, we see that in our own culture. If you think about, uh, you know, grandpa's car is not the same as the car that we drive today, right? Well, that mm -hmm. same sort of process, that same seriation applies when you look at the archaeological record. So there are cultures along the Cumberland that are pre-ceramic, and then there are ones that use uh, you know, shell-tempered ceramics, and there are ones that use limestone-tempered ceramics. So these things change over time. Um, as far as the, the geography of the thing, we tend to find archaeological sites on the remnants of the Cumberland's natural levees, right? Those elevated locations closest to the river. And once you get back off the natural levee, the sites then tend to go away. These are areas that would flood. They may have been used agriculturally or for gardening or hunting, but they're not typically occupation sites. And then we start finding them again once you get up onto the first and second terraces that overlook the river. Again, once you get into areas where it would have been dry for most of the year. And I know one of the most, well, most famous in my mind, at least, uh, archaeological site in this area is Mound Bottom, which is on kind of the narrows of the Harpeth. And you also have come to River Talks and talked about Mound Bottom and the site there. Um, and I was wondering if you could describe um, what that site is, the people that were there, what, what were they using it for? Absolutely, yes. So Mound Bottom State Archaeological Area is a state-owned uh, archaeological site. It's managed by the, uh, the Harpeth River State Park, and it's located down along the Harpeth uh, in Kin Kinston Springs there. Um, it is a Mississippian site. Uh, it's first occupied around 1000 AD and seems to then be occupied for about better part of about three centuries up until about 1325 or 1350 uh, AD. Um, it's most famous for its earthen mounds. It is this series of 12 or depending on who you talk to, 14 earthen mounds that are arranged around a plaza in this tight meander bend of the river. So if you think about it, looking down from the sky, you have this tight meander bend 
And then the center of that meander bend becomes the plaza, the central plaza of the site. And to the east, it's anchored by what we call Mounday, very creatively Mounday, which is the <laughs> largest mound at the site. It's a flat-topped platform mound, stands about 25 feet tall. And then all around that seven acres or so plaza are these smaller mounds. Now today, most of them look rounded on top, but uh, thanks to some of the work we've done recently, we can show that they were originally flat-topped mounds as well. And what that means is that they were built to be substructural, that there were structures built on top of those flat-topped mounds. And we read these archaeologically as being the, the houses or the facilities of uh, people who were higher up in Mississippian society. And how many people lived in that? I mean, I've, it, like you said, it's about seven acres or so in that area. What was the estimated population size of that spot? Well, that's hard to know, right? So, so the plaza itself is about seven acres. The meander bend is about 100 acres. Mm. And we have excavated, historically, excavated maybe less than 1% of that site. Wow. Now, this, a couple of years ago, we did some remote sensing studies uh, where we use you know, various technologies, ground penetrating radar and some other things to sort of see through the earth and get a better idea of what has not been exposed archaeologically. But even so, we don't, we don't have a whole... Uh, it, we don't have a complete read on how many households were at that site. And the site itself, you know, we think of Mound Bottom as being this one discrete meander bend, but the landscape surrounding Mound Bottom is utterly littered with Mississippian occupations, right? On all sides of the creek, there are additional mound sites, cemeteries, individual family farmsteads. Um, the Pack site is another major mound site that we think is contemporaneous to Mound Bottom. People living at them probably consider them the same site, even though it's about a mile away. Mm. And so, you know, we start thinking instead about in terms of not just who lived in this hundred acres and what is now a state park, but who lived in maybe thousands of acres surrounding this site. And you know, we don't understand yet exactly the, the political and social connections that would have bound all these people together, exactly how many people would have been on that landscape. It's just, it's very hard to know. Yeah. And, but my understanding of kind of our region in the Mississippian period is that it was fairly populated. You know, it sounds like there was a lot going on in this region. Is that a fair interpretation? We might not know the exact quantity, but it was like a hot spot for this, this culture? Absolutely. Yeah, that sort of gets back to what we talked about before, right? So Mound Bottom and the Pack site are two of the earliest Mississippian mound sites in the Middle Cumberland. Um, at the point at which they're built around 1000 AD, no one is building anything on that scale of these large multi-mound sites. So they seem to be some of the first ones. And then from there, we can sort of see archaeologically as this, this influence spreads from west to east across the Middle Cumberland Valley, and other people start building mounds and, uh, you know, fortified villages and things like this. And, and so if you actually get into the nitty gritty of the archaeological record, the better part of urban Nashville today had these fortified villages at in intervals of about every three to four miles or less throughout mm -hmm. most of what we consider today to be the city core. And, you know, you can picture those sort of in your mind as being maybe a typical medieval village, right? Surrounded by a wooden palisade, uh, maybe one or two mounds within the village, but mostly, uh, you know, dozens of individual family houses. And those, those villages in turn were, were interacting with and trading with and probably beholden to certain larger mound sites. 
And then so you take this sort of picture of like, you know, villages every three or four miles, and then you sort of fill in the middle of that with all of the suburbs, right? With the single family mm -hmm. farms and, you know, small, small farmsteads and things like this. And you end up with this picture of, of a very urban setting um, of, you know, Nash Nashville as being a very urban place, even in the Mississippian period. I was very lucky to get to go to Mount Bottom on a private uh, tour as part of a, a conference in the fall. And it was after I heard you talk about Mount Bottom. And it really is incredible to stand there and, and sort of, you see the mounds, you sort of see these things you're describing, the flat top mounds, okay? And then you start to try to picture the people in there and what they were doing. And it, it really is a, a playful way to imagine these, these people coming together. But when you look at it, when you stand there, it looks like a, you know, an open field with grass. Um, and so I, I know that one of the questions that we got from Elizabeth was, are there plans to open um, Mound Bottom to the public in, as an archeological park or how can people get an opportunity to go there? Well, so there are and there have been plans to open Mound Bottom to the public. Uh, you know, as early as the 1940s, um, it was suggested that Mound Bottom be be purchased by the state of Tennessee and opened as a uh, sort of an archaeological rest stop along Highway 70 uh, between, you know, stretching between uh, Knoxville and Memphis. Um, the state acquired the, the property in the 1970s, again, with the intention of opening it. And that is still the hope, I believe. Um, as I said, it's managed by the, the Harpeth River State Parks folks, and we really just assist them with it. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding, though, is that um, of course, something like that involves a lot of a lot of money, a lot of planning, and a lot of logistics. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that involves the construction of access into the site. The state does own a access easement to the site, but there are no facilities. Um, it's you know it's it's a remote area at this point. So constructing adequate access so that people can reach it, and then also building out the uh, the the infrastructure so that it is safe for people to visit but then also safe for the site itself um you know that is that is a large concern is that you know if we're going to give open access to any archaeological site we want to make sure that it is protected from vandalism or looting or anything like this that could occur is there i know that if there are some state parks that um do have examples of these mounds. Are there other places that people could go that are open to the public that kind of give the impression of what an, a site like Mount Bottom might look like? Yeah, and of course right now, you know, with, with things reopening around, around the virus, um, I'm not sure what the status of specific parks is, but um, here, in, here in Middle Tennessee, um, Sellers Farm uh, is located to the east over by Lebanon, um, and it is another large Mississippian mound site, and it is actually open um, it, it too does not have facilities, but it has a, you know, interpretive trail that runs through it and is accessible. Um, to the south, Old Stone Fort in Manchester uh, is a earthen mound site that is slightly earlier, uh, dates to the woodland period of prehistory. Um, over south of Jackson, Tennessee, Pinson Mounds State Park is this huge mound complex that also dates from the woodland period, um, sort of right around the, uh, the period right after the BCAD transition. Um, and Pinson is, Pinson is an amazing site um, and also has a museum on site as well. Um, and people can actually get to Mound Bottom. Uh, they just need to do it with accompaniment of either our office or the state park. And we and the park offer guided tours of the site throughout the year. 
uh, before the before the virus, um, park volunteers were actually offering uh, tours of Mount Bottom just about every weekend, and that's something that happened last summer as well. So yeah. if folks are interested in that, I'd encourage them to you know look look at our Facebook page for the Division of Archaeology, check out the Facebook page for State Parks or the um, uh, Parks Events Calendar that you can find online as well. Yeah, great. Thanks, thanks for that reminder that you all do the tours because, I, like I said, I got to go on a tour and it was really incredible to see that site after hearing about it and learning about it from you. You can support the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks program and podcast by donating today. You can find a link in our show notes. So another question that we got in that that relates to Mound Bottom in that period, um, this was a question from Ross, and he was curious about the differences between Mississippian peoples that lived in our region versus areas like Cahokia. And is that something you can tell from the record? And we might need to kind of describe what Cahokia is as well for those who aren't familiar. Sure. So, so Cahokia Mounds is, is a World Heritage Site, I believe. It's, uh, it's located across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. And in some literature, it is called the largest city in North America before European colonization. In some, in some cases, it's called the only city in North America huh. or the only city north of the Rio Grande. Um, you know, Cahokia is centered around Monk's Mound, which is this, I mean, the word massive doesn't even do it justice. It is this ginormous earthen mound. Cahokia is built on the scale of sites that people can probably associate in their head with um, the ancient Maya or the ancient Aztec, mm -hmm. right? This idea of dozens of mounds stretching over just acres and acres and acres. The main difference, of course, is that at Cahokia and here in North Amer Eastern North America, they're being built with uh, earth primarily instead of with stone like they are in Mesoamerica. And so there's this sort of this historical bias where people have been unwilling to see ancient mound sites in North America as being the same level of architecture or planning or complexity that you see in, huh. in Central and Mesoamerica. Um, so we, we think tentatively that it may have been people from Cahokia who came to the Middle Cumberland and established those first mound sites at Mound Bottom and at the Pack site. And we think this based on the artifacts that have been found at those sites, in particular some ceramic vessels and some very specific um, uh, skeletal evidence uh, found at Mount Bottom. We think then that they influenced politically a population that was already living here. There were already people living in the Middle Cumberland, but they didn't necessarily consider themselves, you know, quote unquote, Mississippians or Cahokians. But we see that that influence come in from the American bottom and then spread through the Middle Cumberland region and sort of get grafted onto and coalesce with uh, belief systems and artifact types that were already in place. So we sort of see this merger of traditions. Um, it's hard to get into the exact differences without, you know, without getting way into the weeds about, you know, archaeological ceramic typologies and artistic <laughs> styles and things yeah. like this. But basically what we can say is that the people who lived in the Middle Cumberland may not have considered themselves Cahokians, but they would have been very well acquainted with that site and probably taking advantage of trade networks and influences that that site was exerting on the greater American Southeast. Yeah. So do you think that there was back and forth between say Mound Bottom and Cahokia that people were moving back and forth? Or do you think it was sort of a one way people from Cahokia coming out here? No, I think there's absolutely a back and forth. I mean, um, 
you know, if you look at Cahokia, you have artifacts coming into Cahokia from the American Southwest, right? You, wow. have, you have these incredible trade networks stretching out into the hinterlands. So whether or not people themselves were moving, I think goods and artifacts and materials were moving back upriver, back up to the American bottom. And I'm sure there was an interplay as well. People, you know, coming back and forth between the two, um, you know, the politics of the thing, we're sort of hashing that out. Uh, as to how exactly that plays out here in the middle of Cumberland. But um, yeah, there's definitely sort of an exchange process going on. Yeah, and I know if, if you're interested in learning more about Cahokia, when at the Tennessee State Museum in downtown Nashville, they have good information about that connection to Cahokia and the Mississippian people. So that's another great place to, to learn more. Well, and as, and as far as the culture that's manifesting here in the middle Cumberland, then I, I point anybody who's interested to uh, Kevin Smith's recent River Talks. I think you guys okay. have that up. Uh, on the YouTube channel, maybe? That's a part of our podcast. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so Kevin Smith from MTSU gave a fantastic program recently on um, sort of the ideology, the belief systems that are uh, manifested in the ceramics from the middle Cumberland period here uh, yeah. around Nashville. And it's, it's really interesting stuff and, and does, does a lot more justice to the thing than I can possibly do. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks for, for connecting us back to Kevin there. So this was a question we got from Mikhail and kind of connects to a little bit about what's going on right now. And she wanted to know, how does an archaeologist detect plague in the historic record? That's, boy, that's an interesting question. Um, it varies depending on the society, right? Um, you know, in some cases, you think of, you know, most of us have seen pictures, at least, of like the catacombs in Paris with the stacked bones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something like that is a clear indicator of, of, of a plague. Um, in other cases, it's a lot harder to parse out. Uh, you know, by one statistic, I think it's estimated that uh, European-introduced diseases uh, led to the death of, you know, like one out of every four Native Americans living in that, in that same time period around the 1500s. And you know, if you think about that structurally, right, like if, if one out of every four people die, the remaining people may or may not have the wherewithal to bury those bodies, or they may just leave. And so the actual specific archaeological evidence can be very ephemeral. Um, we can look at the skeletal sample to find evidence of things like malnutrition or warfare, which might not be symptomatic of a plague, but might be the results of a society that have undergone that plague. Or here in the Middle Cumberland, we think that there were uh, decades of drought, ongoing drought for uh, several generations that ultimately led to sort of the disintegration of these, this Mississippian society that was in the area. And again, we don't find evidence of the drought specifically. Instead, we find references to it in the art. We find um, evidence of anemia and... Um, uh, nutritional deficiencies in the skeletal sample, uh, high infant mortality rates, things like this. And and it was it at Mound Bottom that 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 they kind of that that culture just sort of left, and you're not totally sure where those people went. And then again, in the record, it just sort of stopped. Well, so Mound Bottom is an interesting one because it's 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 one of the first, as I mentioned, but it also ends before the Mississippian period ends. So. I'd say about a century before the Mississippian period ends, Mound Bottom seems to be unoccupied. Hmm. And so there's some political shifts going on there where people seem to have left those early major political centers and instead sort of spread out into smaller regional 
chiefdoms perhaps throughout the region. They've left behind the old power structure, they're creating one of their own. And this is happening while this period of drought is ongoing. And so Mount Bottom is, appears to be unoccupied by about 1300, 1325 AD. Um, the Mississippian culture continues in the Middle Cumberland region for about another century hmm. before sort of, I think the term that, that Dr. Smith has used is uh, uh, falling below the level of archeological visibility. So in other words, we can't tell archaeologically that there were people living on the landscape after about A.D. 1450 or so. But was that, I'm trying to remember from your talk earlier, is that before sort of the European influence in this area? Isn't there, was there some sort of discrepancy in the time periods for that? It, it is before. It's, it's about, a century, uh, about a century before the first Spanish set foot in East Tennessee. Okay. Um, so, so, so by the time that the the first uh you know cumberland river the, the first people come down the cumberland river right demumbruin and the french uh come down the cumberland set up uh, fort nashborough by the time that sequence happens they can see the remnants of this earlier culture around them right i, th I think by one account wasn't uh fort nashborough actually the one of the early versions of the fort was i think built on top of that prehistoric mound near mm. uh near lick branch i believe Hmm. Someone, someone test, check me on that, but I think that's the case. Um, so that they see around them the evidence of these earlier cultures, but at that time then there are no permanent year-round villages or towns in what is now Nashville. Yeah, that, that's interesting. And I know we talk about John Donaldson's journey and sort of that to the founding of Nashville. And I always sort of question that, you know, it's not really the founding of Nashville. It's the founding of maybe a different version of Nashville, but this region, you know, had had people in it and living along these same waterways for a long time. And so I think it's important to remember that the, those people were there before people came down the, the boats in the Cumberland River. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And, and not just, not just there before, but, but frankly, living, living in, in societies that were, you know, highly organized and artistically inclined and, uh, frankly, probably had better standards of living than longer, longer life expectancies than a lot of the early Cumberland River yeah. settlers did. Um, well, to wrap up today, I've got two, two quick questions for you. The first one is, what is something that people might be surprised to learn about archaeology in our region? And what's one of the things that you really love about studying in this area? Well, um, let's see. As far as things people might be surprised, I think it's, I think it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, just this idea that, you know, historic Nashville doesn't start with the Cumberland River settlers or with the reconstruction of the fort down there along mm -hmm. Lower Broadway, right? Historic Nashville goes back 14,000 years. Um, you know, all of our yards, all of our fields, all of our, uh, you know, structures and cities, there, were, there have been people there for thousands of years. And it is sometimes surprising to people when they encounter those remains unexpectedly, mm -hmm. but, but those remains are there and people should be aware that you know, they occupy a landscape in which people have been living for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something that's easy for people who live in like Rome or London to intuit, but I think is oftentimes lost in American cities. This idea that, you know, there is an ancient past that predates our civilization. Um, yeah. And I think, I think that also then is, is sort of what I, what I love about, um, working in this area. Um, I, I have a strong research interest in, uh, forager societies, so pre-agricultural societies in Tennessee, uh, this archaic period, 
And um, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing along the Cumberland River particularly is, is showing us that these sort of old images of, you know, quote unquote, primitive people scavenging off the landscape and moving around in small bands, you know, believing in nothing, not making art, all of those are incredibly biased and outdated. Right. And, and we're learning how, how complex people's lives have always been. Um, and on one hand, that, that's not something that should surprise us. And yet it's also a marked departure from the last century of scholarship. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and you kind of alluded to what I'm going to have my last question be, which is that if somebody were to find an artifact that they feel is archaeologically significant, what should they do? How do they get that information to the right person? Well, so um, under Tennessee state law, artifacts found on private property are considered to be the property of the landowner. Um, so, you know, a lot of people will not share fines because there, there's sometimes a perception that, you know, the state will come and take them away or will seize your land. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing that happens. Um, artifacts found on private property are the, are the, are the property of the landowner. Um, artifacts found on public lands or federal lands should be left alone. Those belong to the managing agencies and there are state and federal laws protecting those artifacts. So please do not dig or pick up artifacts along our rivers or in our state parks or in metro parks. Um, yeah. If you find something and you want to know more about what you have, that's a lot of what we do at the Division of Archaeology. You, you can look us up online and send me or one of my colleagues a photo of the artifact, um, and we will be happy to tell you what we can about that thing. Um, if you find bones and are not sure if they are human or animal, those bones are protected by Tennessee cemetery statutes, regardless of how old or what culture they belong to. And so if you do find remains that might be human, please stop what you're doing, call the sheriff's department, call the medical examiner, call our office. Again, it could be crime scene, it could be an archeological site, Either way, it's important and should be, should be dealt with in the appropriate manner. Yeah, that, that, that's good advice at the end there. Um, well, Aaron, is there anything else that you wanted to add today? I think we had a, this was so fun to talk and I'm sure we could keep talking for another hour. Is there anything else you want to add? No, uh, I, you know, thank you again for having me on. And um, I, hope, I hope once this is all said and done with, I'll be able to get back to the, uh, to the bridge building there and, and give another program for you guys in person. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Aaron. And like I said at the beginning, I always love our history and archaeology river talks because just like you were saying, it puts the river in our region in a context that is broader than what we're experiencing now and really shows the value of our waterways and protecting them, not just for water quality, biodiversity, all these things that we, we sort of intuitively know, but for their historical significance to cultures that have been here and were here for way longer than we have been here. And I think that that's a, just as valuable as a reason to protect waterways as anything else. So thank you as always for sharing that perspective with us. We hope you enjoyed this week's interview. Don't forget to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode. And if you have a minute, please rate and review our podcast. We look forward to seeing you in the River Center in downtown Nashville soon. Until then, Thanks for listening, and we hope to catch you next week with a new episode of River Talks.